Hey, you're listening to Cut for Time, a podcast from Faith Church located on the north side of Indianapolis. My name is Claire Kingsley. Each week, I'll sit down with one of our preaching pastors to discuss their Sunday sermon. Cut for Time is a look behind the scenes of sermon preparation, and they'll share with us a few things that we didn't hear from the sermon on Sunday. Thanks for listening. I mean, I feel like I could give an update on potty training for everybody. It's going really yeah, well. Yeah, everybody. Good. And we good. haven't had an accident since. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, <laughs> congratulations to Nathan. Let him know we're all proud of him. <laughs> and. Uh... <laughs> uh, yep. Yep. Addie Joe's doing great. Okay. Good job, Addie. Yeah. All right, Joey. Yes. Oh. We're here again. It's kind of fun where we are now. You know, we're going to get. We're going to finish the end of chapter five this Sunday, and then we get we get into another session about conflict within the church. So Luke's like going every other. Uh, we got opposition from outside. We've got this conflict inside. We just talked about last Sunday with Ananias and Sapphira. We're going to go back to uh, persecution from outside, where this time they're actually like arrested, jailed, escape, um, invited back in for a trial, and then beaten. Um, and the beating is probably like you know. 40 lashes minus one, like this is no small thing. Um, and then from there, it's going to go back to the inside, uh, inside the church where we've got the, um, the Greek widows who are being uh, neglected in the daily distribution uh, of food and funds. And mm-hmm. so it's like, oh man, we are big enough now. We need more administrative help. So they point the first deacons that introduces Stephen, who's then martyred. We go back to opposition from the outside. So it just keeps going back and forth all in Jerusalem until finally Stephen's martyrdom and that scatters the church abroad uh, Mm -hmm. and pushes the Jesus movement out of Jerusalem and out to uh, Jewish centers all across kind of the Mediterranean. And that's what starts to bring Gentiles into the church and they have to start wrestling with the Gentile question. Okay. And that gets us to what chapter approximately in Acts? So uh, beginning of chapter eight, uh, the -hmm. first, first verse or two of chapter eight is when the church gets pushed out of Jerusalem and uh, start scattering. Mm-hmm. And that's when we're going to switch to our third sub-series that we have in this yeah, overall yep. two, yep. Um, two and a half year series. So yeah, right now we've been yeah. gathering the church and pretty soon we'll be scattering the church. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, so give us your recap from your sermon on Sunday, which was uh, the field. Yeah, the field. So we're talking about the field that, well, two fields, actually, one that Barnabas sold and one that Ananias and Sapphira sold. Um, Barnabas, this is called a field. Theirs is called a plot of land. A little creative license there, I suppose. But uh, so what we have is a church that is incredibly unified as the new people of God living out um, the the vision of what Israel would be in the promised land from Deuteronomy 15, um, living the kind of life that Greek society always longed for, where people held all things in common, which is not like a communism or a socialism. It just means that no one's without, no one's going without because everyone out of love for one another is generously sharing of what they have. None of this is forced or under compulsion. This is the evidence of the filling of the spirit in individuals and in the community as a whole, um, it, it empowering people to, to think less of themselves and less of their own property and to uh, give it to the use of others. And there's some stuff you know we could have talked about I, that I cut, including some new uh, vocabulary that I learned uh, in oh. studying that we can come back to if you want. Yeah. Um, but in into this situation, into this incredible unity, we have Ananias and Sapphira walk in with their attempt to use the uh, the the impulse of the spirit 
of giving and self-sacrificing and they are going to use it not for self-sacrifice but for self-exaltation um and for self-aggrandizement where they are saying oh we could do that too we could we could give up you know we have plenty um these are probably you know business people professionals obviously each is able to run their own business without the the other necessarily um you know ananias and sapphire are interacting at different times and so they're um they're well to do and they're like yeah we got something to spare we'll sell a field donate the money we'll you know we'll say we sold it for 100 and we actually sold it for 150 keep a little bit for ourselves and and we're gonna get, it's like a win-win we get to both keep some of the money and everybody's gonna think we're way more you know holy than we really are uh, way more virtuous than we are mm-hmm. and that kind of thing that kind of self-exaltation at the expense of the community um, I didn't really talk about this in the sermon, but that that is one of the like stock ways of describing the wicked in the Old Testament, especially in Proverbs. If you go to the Old Testament and you read like about the righteous do this and the wicked do that, you you always see the righteous are those who disadvantage themselves for the sake of the community, and the wicked are those who disadvantage the community for the sake of themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of that same parallel shows up here. You've got uh, Barnabas giving up of his own in order to serve the community. And you have Ananias and Sapphira appearing to give up their own, uh, appearing to give up of their own in order to serve themselves. Uh, so the, but the, the thing that I, that really got me from this passage is the explanation near the end that um, great fear came upon the whole church. So this isn't one of those where people outside are like, are looking at it and going, whoa, this is, wow, look at that. Look at the power there. And people in the church are like, yeah, those guys were definitely wicked. Great fear came upon the whole church. I think, and that great fear is repeated. That phrase is repeated a couple of times. It's like the the people in the church seeing someone who is a, the Ananias, male, rich, you know, and, and generous. This is obviously someone who, in, has been blessed by God and then seeing him judge and then his wife judged immediately with death uh, at God's hands is uh, like, oh, oh, this is serious. If this could happen to that guy, this could happen to any of us. Like we could all. And so that's where in the sermon, it's like, hey, we need to pay attention to ourselves. Uh, great fear is more than just reverent awe of God. It's a it's an awe of God coupled with a um, a compulsion to self-examination where am I doing the same kind of thing in the life of the church? So ultimately the, the the main takeaway or the bottom line of the whole sermon was um, what, you know, what's most damaging to the church. What's most dangerous to the church is what's on the inside, not the outside. I thought about making the bottom line uh, poison works best when it's ingested, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. once you swallow it, that's when it starts to do damage. Um, And I, I think that's, in a sense, what's going on here that um, it's easy for us in our day and age to think that the biggest threat to the church is out there, but really the biggest threat to the unity of the church. And it's the unity of church that authentic, the unity of the church that authenticates the message of the gospel, that this is really real. Mm-hmm. So the biggest threat to the gospel is not, you know, it's not school boards out there pushing CRT and it's not woke ideology and it's not, um, it's not transgenderism and some of the, the debates going on around homosexuality and list all of your stuff. It's not any of that. The biggest threat to the gospel is my heart 
and what's going on inside of me and my own selfishness that destroys the unity of the church and inauthenticates the witness of the gospel. Hey, I appreciate that. I think that that's a great challenge. I also think I could be wrong, but it also is a little radical. Like it's something that we don't hear often enough. We are so quick to point out like all these things that can create fear in some, create worry, create some chaos. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, this is yeah. what we're working against. Like this is what we are, these are our obstacles. The spirits of um, darkness and yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think your message is humbling for all of us to just, yeah, do that self-examination work and say, wait, look at the log in our own eye or like, where's my heart not aligned with the body of yeah. Christ, with the word of God? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a there's a, a couple of quotes uh, from different authors I didn't use because of the whole setup, you know, the, the time it would take to set them up. Uh, one is this famous anecdote that I think is apocryphal, but uh, supposedly G.K. Chesterton, along with a number of authors, was invited to write an essay for London newspaper, uh, What's Wrong with the World Today? And the story goes that Chesterton's was the shortest. It said, uh, Dear Sirs, I am what's wrong with the world today. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Um, mm. that, that's kind of pithy way of putting it. But uh, Alexa uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the, the Russian philosopher, um, he talked about, and I forget where he wrote it, if it was in a speech or if it was in the, the Gulag Archipelago, but he says that um, it, it would be easy enough if we simply took all the bad people and the, all the good people and we separated them, we put all the bad people in one place. Uh, but he says, but the line between good and evil runs directly through every human heart and who wants to set aside a part of themselves. Yeah. Something along those lines. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, um... All right, so we've got some questions for you then. Let's just try and tackle Let's do them. it. Um, okay. All right, Joey, were Ananias and Sapphira actually believers or not? They're part of this church. And yeah. like, I think that it'd be helpful to have that context. Do we know anything about that? It's a debate. Uh, it's debated. Um, were they actually believers or not? Uh, there's a couple of reasons uh, that would make you think that they're believers. A, they're internal to the church. Um, this is an internal threat to the church. Um, B, they, they seem to be actually being generous, even if they're being generous for the wrong motives, they seem to at least have some sort of mixed motives going on here. Um, but on the other hand, they're also introduced in a way that Luke tends to introduce non-believers throughout, uh, the book of Acts. Um, Chapter five, verse one says, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, and that pattern shows up multiple times, but a man named Cornelius, uh, who is an unbeliever when he's introduced and eventually becomes a believer, but a man named Simon, the magician, um, who is trying to use the power uh, that he sees the apostles have, but without submission to God. So um, there's, they could be sympathizers. Um, you know, at this point, people are astonished by, you know, uh, by what's going on. Um, and uh, the, there's a lot of sympathy for this movement. Uh, but that doesn't mean everybody who's sympathetic to it is joining it. So they could have been just sort of aligning themselves with what they saw as a movement that, you know, was making progress. Um, or, you know, they're actually uh, believers in Jesus as the Messiah, uh, in which case the punishment is punishment by God, but it, it, there's nothing said in here about their eternal destiny. Um, so there's nothing about they died and then went to hell. It, it's just 
they died. So um, bottom line is there isn't enough data to be conclusive uh, about were they true believers? Were they sympathizers? Were they on the pathway to accepting that Jesus was the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for? Uh, we just, we don't know. Either way, I think the application is the same, especially if I'd use that um, bottom line of, you know, poison works best once it's ingested. Um, that you just have, oh, here's the threat to unity of the church that is trying to work its way in and divide the church from the inside. Um, or it's, hey, they actually are believers and are are kind of presenting that same kind of threat to the church. Okay, last week, I'm up for time, we talked about the filling of the spirit, what that looks like yeah. and the yeah, role yeah, yeah. of the Holy Spirit at the time. Um, and then like kind of how that uh, went along with Pentecost and maybe being filled with the spirit back in the gospels. So um, when, in this uh, story, then we kind of see the filling of Satan being like in contrast yeah. to the filling of the spirit. Can you talk more yeah. about just those two and um, specifically the filling of Satan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, a couple of comments. Number one is on that word filling. Uh, it's Luke's favorite word for coming under the influence of or being empowered by someone or something. And he uses the word it to, and, and talks about people being filled with multiple different categories of things or peoples or, or whatever. So filled with the Holy Spirit, coming under the influence of and being empowered by uh, the Spirit of God, which we talked about last week, you know, the early understanding of what is the Spirit of is Well, it's God's self-agency in the world. And later Trinitarian um, theology, reading, you know, trying to read scripture as a whole and understand, okay, we've got a, we, we've got God, we've got Jesus, who's clearly divine, but refers to a father who sends a spirit and, and each seems to have personhood, like how do we understand this? This is where we get the the classic three in one, right? Yeah, yep. Uh, what we should, so filling can be used of being influenced by or empowered by the Holy Spirit. Filling is used to describe being influenced by uh, Satan or uh, actually it's almost always the Satan. Um, anytime yeah. you see Satan in scripture, like 98% of the time it's the Satan because Satan is a title. Um, it's a Hebrew word meaning the adversary or the accuser. Um, so it's the Satan. I, I think I said in the sermon, the Satan, the personification of evil. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll come back to that in just a second. Uh, okay. But another way filling is used in the very next uh, story um, in Acts chapter five, verse 17, the high priest rose up all who were with them and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles. So you can be influenced by an emotional state uh or a sinful uh outlook so we got a range from the person of the spirit and for the listeners at home i'm gesticulating here to uh, to make a point you know the, yeah. there's three different there's a range here on the one end is being filled by the person of the spirit on the other end is being filled by or filled with an emotion that is generated internally and the question is, filling, being filled by the Satan, the accuser, is that more like being empowered and indwelled by a, uh, and influenced by a person, the spirit? Or is that more like being influenced by or driven by an emotion, a non-personal thing? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the reason this is important for us to consider is that we we tend to often think of what well, you've got God and his opposite, Satan, or the spirit and his opposite, right, Satan. And we think of both as personal agents operating in the world. Um, I think, personally, I think it's better. I shouldn't just say personally. I mean, there's a lot of church history behind this and interpretive history behind this. But I think it's better to understand uh, Satan or the Satan or the accuser as the personification of evil, but not a fully uh, rational um, actor or agent in the world like a person or like an angel. Um, of course, we can connect this with the Lucifer, the fall of Lucifer in the Old Testament. And how do you understand, okay, an angel, Lucifer means light bearer, an angel who falls. Um, I think when an angel, when an angel falls, a demon or Lucifer as a Satan, um, it's akin to the way uh, theologians have talked about human nature, in a sense, devolving because of sin. We become um, more animal-like, more beastly, the more we give in to vice and become formed by uh, by sinful habits and patterns. The more we are formed by uh, holy habits and patterns, the more human we actually become. So what I'm saying there is, especially if you look later and you think of Peter writing about how, you know, Satan is like a, a lion that's seeking whom he would like to devour. Uh, I think However, we think of Satan or demons or evil spirits, it's best to think of them not as people like soldiers in an army with generals and more like a pack of wolves or a pack of lions, pride of lions, pride of lions, pack of wolves, uh, but more like hunters, scavengers, animals that are driven not by uh, reason and rationality, but are driven by instinct and simply survival, um, that, that whatever Satan and the demons were before angels that were fallen, they have fallen to the state of, of essentially being more like, uh, you know, a pack of wild animals that will rip you apart. Not because, not for any reason other than that they're hungry or this is what animals do. Um, so being filled by the Satan here is being filled with or influenced by kind of the personification of evil or evil impulses, evil working in the, in the world, or to use the animal analogy, you could say, yeah, he was, he was driven by his uh, animal instincts or or driven by, uh, it's almost like he was being driven with a a lion's thirst to conquer or something along those lines. Now I'm not saying Satan isn't real or anything like that, but there is a strong sense in scripture that when we give our worship to false things, to idols, we in a in some way we lend to those idols um, some of our own agency to the point where those idols then seem to be able to do become act in the world in the way that personal agents would or like I'm describing these you know a lion or a pack of wolves or something like that so still very real very spiritually dark um, yeah. but not rational personal. Uh, agents acting in the world like the spirit, like the Holy Spirit is, uh, more like the pack of wolves. Sure, that makes sense. Okay, uh, let's go back to you mentioning um, maybe your cut for time segment. You learned some new vocab that you could share. With oh, us. <laughs> yes. What was that? Yeah. <laughs> so I learned this word, uh, usufruct. Ooh, is uh, that English? I know, right? 
Uh, it is, I think it comes from two Latin words, usus, meaning the use of a thing, and fruct, which are fructare, which is um, fruitfulness. Um, you know, high fructose corn syrup is, uh, you know, got a lot of, a lot of fruitful sugar in it. Or um, anyway, so use of fruit is a, a concept where, well, so for one thing, uh, we talk about public ownership and private ownership as very distinct things. Um, that's not really the way that the, the Jewish mind thought about personal property. Mm. So the right of use of fruit means, hey, I own this land, but um, it's it can be used for the common good or everybody can or the, this group I'm part of or the family I'm part of can, um, you know, can gain from the, the benefits of me owning this land. It's not exclusively for my use and my, yeah. um, you know, my profit. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, there's some neighborhoods I remember growing up in uh, where like our neighborhood, my dad had a lot of tools. The guy next door had a lot of tools. And it was always just like, you know, just because I own it doesn't mean you can't use it and benefit from it. Like we can all mm -hmm. share this. Now, mm -hmm. if you did damage to it, you had to you had to replace it. And that's kind of the, the Jewish way of looking at it. So some of these fields, some of these fields, houses, whatever that were sold, um, even the idea of selling there may have been less about divesting yourself of the asset and more of, oh, I'm going to lease it out or I'm going to make it available for public, you know, for the use of the group, the whole. So, mm -hmm. yeah, use of fruits. I'm going to try to work that into just normal, uh, normal conversation going forward, I think, unless it That's sounds brilliant. too close to like I'm swearing or something. I don't know what it would sound like, but. <laughs> Martha Stewart. Yeah, right. Oh, man. <laughs> no, that's great. Okay, where did you learn this? How did, just a commentary? Oh, uh, yeah, commentary. Okay. Um, describing the, yes. Uh, actually, it was commenting on Acts chapter two, because I, I said, I think, early in the sermon that the ending of Acts two and the summary statement there is very similar to the ending of Acts four and the summary statement here. And there's another summary statement coming up in chapter five, verses 12 through 16, um, about how, how, Again, the signs, wonders, um, and what the esteem that's being the uh, with the esteem with which the community is held uh, by the the broader Jewish uh, broader uh, citizens of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so similar. In fact, that when Terry was reading scripture, I was like, "Wait, uh, didn't we read this already?" Is that uh, is, is that the right? The is that it? Is yeah. we? Uh oh. Yeah. 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 All right, Joey. What would you say to somebody who? Um, maybe then response to a sermon like this with some fear, like, um, mm. Hey, I'm already concerned about getting close to people in church or I've been burned. And this is just an example of how I could be hurt again in the future because, Hey, like we know the threat is in our own hearts. It's in our body. And they just, it's just affirming, like, it's not saying we're dangerous, but that maybe is how they feel, is that being close to others could be dangerous. Mm. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, being close to others is always dangerous. And there's no way not to be close to others without um, shutting down the part of yourself that is most distinctively human. Um, I forget who says it, but, um, no, I think Lewis says it somewhere in, I think it's in mere Christianity. He says that you can, um, 
you can avoid being with other people. At, you know, you get burned, right? So you avoid being with other people and you shut down the parts of your heart that connect with others. He says, but the result is that you become less than human. Um, so human connection is always, always dangerous. Um, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on Cut for Time. I, I, I've never brought it up in a sermon either, but I, I have this theory that if something can't go horribly wrong, like about human relationships or community or leadership structures or whatever, if it can't go horribly wrong, they, then it can never be incredibly beautiful. Yeah. Um, that the potential for uh, greatness always is paralleled with the potential for incredible uh, abuse or hurt or pain. Um, and so we can try to like, bring things down to at least, you know, at least common denominator where nobody gets hurt, but nobody gets hurt. And you also, it's like, well, it's nothing really special is happening here either. Um, now that, that's more theoretical than pastoral. I think to the person who would be asking me that question of like, I just don't know if I can risk getting close to people. Right. I, I, every time I do, I get burned. Um, to that person, I, I would certainly say that that's really tough because the thing that makes that burning so intensely painful is that you know, uh, your heart knows you're supposed to be deeply known and close to other people. And every time you feel like you go for that, um, that thing that your heart longs for is taken away from you or leveraged to hurt you. Um, mm. So I would certainly say, I mean, first of all, we have to find our, our being knownness uh, in Christ, not in others, not even in our own selves. Like none of us knows ourselves. Um, Augustine said the heart is unplumbable. There are depths there that no one can ever plumb in their own selves. Um, but Christ knows us to the very bottom uh, and still loves us absolutely, uh, completely and unconditionally. So that there has to be a strong foundation there. And then from that foundation, uh, from there, slowly adding one person, a second person uh, that that does see that and sees that you have that own need in yourself uh, and that own fear in yourself and is able to walk with you and affirm you through uh, facing that fear. Um, and then recognizing you know, with slowly building a community that it takes it takes time, it takes a ton of time. I mean, nobody wants to admit it, but going to a new church or committing yourself to a group of people or any of it, it's, it's like dating. It's awkward you hate doing it. You're like, I think there's going to be something great on the other end. And half the time you love spending time with the person. The other half the time you're like, Oh, this person drives me nuts. And you know, all of that, right. It's relationships are, are, uh, I was about to say relationships are work, but I saw uh, an article the other day that said marriage is not, uh, marriage isn't hard work. It's serious play. And I thought, Oh, that's kind of an, a nice turn of phrase that yeah. um, it's more about the enjoyment of, uh, building and creating something together, playing, you know, telling a story together than it is about, you know, doing a checklist of, of work that you find onerous and uncomfortable and difficult. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I uh, uh, was reading a while ago, uh, Rowan Williams, he's the former Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, he wrote a book about Benedictine spirituality that I, I really liked. I read it while on the sabbatical and um, he tells a story in there of, coming to um, uh, being a guest lecturer at a university somewhere. And after, um, I can't remember if this is his story or he's recounting the story of someone else. It doesn't matter. You know, you're on campus, you're talking to different professors, different people. And after a while, you just kind of realize that the spirit of the place 
the way he describes it, the spirit of this place is complaining. You know, you think of the university as a body or think of the church as a body, as Jesus tells us to. Um, you can kind of ask yourself the question, like, what am I putting into the bloodstream? Uh, that was his conclusion of it was like, I went to this university and I realized every professor in the university, every staff member I talked to was putting complaint and dissent into the bloodstream. And it's no wonder um, there weren't enough antibodies to fight it off. And so the whole, the whole body was diseased. Um, so I think it's a good question for us of what am I putting into the bloodstream of faith church? Um, what type of, am I putting in selfishness or selflessness? Am I putting in self-exaltation or am I putting in the lifting up of others? You know, what, what am I putting into um, this church? Uh, but he also says in that book, and I think it's in a different, a different essay in it, that um, if your commitment to your church, um, uh, if it has automatically has a sense of like, well, I'll put up with so much and then I'm out. He says, there are depths of spiritual growth in Christ that you will never reach. Um, because as long as you say, I'll take only so much and then I'm out, you are never going to be forced to grow through anything that's beyond that point. Um, you're never going to get, you know, you're never going to go past that point and have to rely on Christ uh, to continue your growth. Because he says, like, you know, there's always going to be other people. And if yeah. you just keep having the same kind of 10 year relationship five times in a row, um, then you, that's nothing like having a 50 year relationship. And one yeah. of the things I absolutely love about Faith Church is that there are so many people here who have been here for 50 years or more. Um, and it is their faithfulness to the unity of faith church that has kept this church together and kept this church unified throughout all the different changes and challenges and seasons and all of that stuff. And it is those who have selflessly served and stayed in the church for decades upon decades. Uh, they are the ones who build the unity uh, of the church, the unity that you and I and our families and others our age get to enjoy um, and then have a, I think, a sacred responsibility to maintain. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Cut for Time. If you wish to submit questions to our pastors following their sermon, you can email them to podcast at faithliveitout.org or text them into our Faith Church texting number, and we'll do our best to cover it in the week's episode. If this conversation blessed you in any way, we encourage you to share it with others. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week.